counterterrorism is still the dominant paradigm in which um, people, uh, in which the U.S. military sees its actual kinetic activity right now. But at the same time, as I said earlier, there's a broader strategic shift. I think away from this idea of the war on terror is the main activity of the U.S. towards trying to confront what the U.S. elite sees as its bigger threats, which is China and uh, Russia. This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Rory Fanning, and I work for Haymarket Books, and it is my distinct pleasure to be hosting an event with Anand Gopal and Rosina Ali, um, the U.S. Empire after Afghanistan. Uh, Rosina Ali is a contributing writer at the New York Times Magazine and a fellow at Type Media Center. Her writing covers the war on terror, Islamophobia, and the Middle East and South Asia. She was previously on the staff of The New Yorker uh, and the Cairo Review of Global Affairs, uh, and she is currently working on a book about the history of Islamophobia in the United States. Anangopal is a freelance journalist covering Afghanistan, Egypt, Syria, and other international hotspots. He's the author of the Pulitzer Prize-nominated No Good Men Among the Living and is currently working on a book about the Arab revolutions. Anand and Rosina, it's great to be with you today. Uh, thank you for taking the time to discuss uh, these important uh, topics. Um, why don't we just kick right off? Um, maybe start with the, we can start with the 3.6 million Afghans who have fled their homes because of the U.S. occupation. I mean, that's the rough equivalent of the entire populations of Montana and Arkansas being forced to flee their homes, often after a loved one is killed, to try and, to try and find a new home uh, in a space the size of Texas, only with far fewer resources than Americans would have access to, which is a, li- a pretty low bar. Um, would either of you like to kick off the discussion by updating us on this uh, particular component of the crisis? Um, yeah, I can I can start. Um, so, you know, I'll speak a little bit about what's happening uh, with Afghan refugees, um, at least along the Pakistani-Afghan border. Um, so right now, I'd say there are about three different groups of Afghan refugees. There are those who have crossed into Pakistan who are in refugee camps and have, after having registered with the UN. Um, but the UN doesn't have a lot of capacity and a lot of refugees end up in these camps for years uh, before their applications can be processed. So it's, you know, it's really uh, important to remember that there are children who grow up in these refugee camps and sometimes that's not an option for a lot of people. Um, which is how we get to the second group of refugees who have kind of melted into the big cities in Pakistan, like Islamabad. And there are unfortunately issues with this because uh, the Pakistani government 
doesn't really want to bear the burden, understandably, of caring for these influx of refugees. And it's effectively told NGOs and religious organizations not to help them, which means that a lot of the Afghans living in these cities don't really have access to medical services or education. Um, They don't have access to banks. And this is a pretty, it's a, I mean, it's a really, really trying time for a lot of them I've been speaking to. Um, And then there's the third group that are, who are the Afghans at the border who are still trying to cross. And with winter coming, it really uh, puts them at risk. Um, Those are the bulk of them. uh, But it's also important to remember that there's still about, you know, tens of thousands of Afghans trying to get refuge in the U.S. Um, Since early November, there have been about 20,000 new applicants. Uh, But as far as I know, most of those applications have not been approved yet. Um, Yeah. And and, and I think it's just it's worth remembering. And, you know, one thing that kind of really struck me about what happened um, in the aftermath of the pullout was that a lot of these evacuations um, and the drive to help a lot of these refugees has been mostly done by civilians. It's mostly been led by journalists or activists or lawyers. Um, And that really highlights where the U.S. government has been absent. You know, the priority of the U.S. government has been really counterterrorism and not preparing for humanitarian needs even though it knew that the war was failing. Yeah, so, uh, Anand, was- yeah I would just, that's, uh, I think, really well put. I would just add uh, a couple of points to that. One is, uh, you know, Rosina mentioned that there are all sorts of refugees on the border right now who are trying to cross because the winter's coming. Um, and now it's interesting to think about why they are refugees exactly and what does it mean? What does the category refugee even denote? Um, the United Nations considers somebody a refugee only if they're fleeing political violence. Uh, but millions of people right now are, are, are fleeing the fact of fleeing poverty, essentially. They're fleeing the fact that the U.S. government and other Western governments have frozen money uh, to Afghanistan, essentially punishing ordinary Afghans for the fact that the Taliban have taken over the country. Right. And so there's, that has happened in the, at the same time as there's a, a severe drought and the winter's coming on. And so there's really horrific uh, images that are coming out of um, malnutrition, severe malnutrition among children. People are, there's stories of people selling their children. I mean, it's really terrible stories that you're hearing right now. And that is first and foremost what people are fleeing at the moment. They're not fleeing the violence of the Taliban government or any other military actor. They're fleeing fleeing poverty. They're fleeing the fact that they don't have enough to eat. Most of these people are trying to get to Pakistan or to other countries. The United Nations wouldn't even consider them refugees. They consider them economic migrants, which just goes to show how they decide who's worthy of being saved and not being saved. Um, and at the same time, as there's, there's like millions of people trying to leave the country, there's another kind of very interesting uh, phenomenon that's happening, which I noticed when I was on the ground in Afghanistan about two months ago, which is that in a lot of the areas in uh, the south and the east of the country, which is where the most concentrated U.S. Um, uh, fighting was, where the these are villages that are really heavily bombed over the last two decades. Um, I'd gone there in the years past and seen villages that have been completely depopulated. And now you have a lot of people, at least when I was there two months ago, coming back to the country. So just as people are fleeing 
the Taliban or fleeing the prospect of, of um, the economic collapse. There are so many hundreds of thousands of other people who had already fled over the last two decades of the U.S. occupation because of basically American violence and American-backed violence primarily, have, who had seen their homes destroyed. Now they're seeing, okay, the U.S. has left. They don't like the Taliban, but maybe that means there's no more war. And so they're cautiously coming back to their communities, to their villages, and they're finding their villages completely reduced to rubble and seeing if they can rebuild their lives. So both of this is happening at the same time, which is, I think, important for us to keep in mind. Yeah, thanks, Alan. Um, you know, this is a bit of a follow-up question, I guess. Um, we talked about how winter is approaching. Um, uh, we have 23 million Afghans who are currently threatened with starvation um, and now the suffocating uh, US-backed sanctions. Um, some estimates say a staggering only 5% of Afghan households have enough to eat every day. Uh, maybe this is a two-part question. Does the U.S. plan on lifting these sanctions anytime soon, as far as you can tell? Or do you have any insight into that? And you know, how is the country, Afghanistan, dealing with uh, what could become a catastrophic famine this winter? Yeah, Anand, you might want to talk about what's happening on the ground since you were there recently. Sure. But maybe even before I do that, I just take a step back and maybe talk about why this is happening. Um, why is it that when the Taliban takes over, there's this economic collapse? Um, to, to, to understand that, we should go back a little bit to the history of the U.S. occupation. What the U.S. did is when they invaded the country, they um, set up this uh, government in Kabul and some of the cities and basically then um, promoted with an ally, promoted and allied with um, warlords around the countryside. So what the Afghan government of the previous 20 years really looked like was a few people in suits in big cities and basically a bunch of warlords in the rest of the country who were really running the show. And they were warlords who were getting fabulously wealthy off of American contracts, Defense Department contracts, for, for example. Right. So the entire occupation was basically set up as a way for these uh, defense contractors and private security companies and warlords and others to get fabulously wealthy. Um, there was no real economy in Afghanistan whatsoever. The government that the U.S. set up didn't even have the ability to collect taxes. So like 80 percent of the government's revenue over the last two decades was, came from abroad, came from the, in the form of foreign aid or um, in, of grants. So what that meant is that the moment that the U.S. and other international countries decided to turn the spigot off to you know, end the contracts and end the foreign aid, the government basically had no, no revenue to, to survive. Uh, it couldn't pay its uh, teachers, couldn't pay healthcare workers, it couldn't pay, you know, civil servants. And that's what's happened. So when the Taliban took over, the Western countries froze the money and now nobody's uh, been paid. So teachers in Afghanistan haven't been paid since June. And, you know, the, you hear a lot in the Western media and from the from the uh, United States about how the Taliban are harming Afghan women. And they are. They're horrible towards women. But it's also the case that if you don't pay teachers, how can girls go to school? Um, you know, it's also the case that if uh, families don't can make a, a livelihood, then, um, you know, how can we support women's rights in any way? And so what's essentially happened, and I said this earlier, is by turning the by freezing the funds, the U.S. is continuing its war on Afghanistan by other means. It's continuing its war through economic means. And that's causing that's what's causing the, uh, the severe humanitarian collapse. So now when I was there a couple of months ago, this was just after the Taliban had taken over. And you were just beginning to see the signs of that economic collapse. Um, people were on the streets selling their furniture. 
Um, there people are just like emptying emptying their houses and selling whatever they could just to you know make ends meet. There were people doing whatever they could to flee the country. That was in September and October. Now we're in December, and now the winter chill is there, and and the situation is all that much worse. I get um, texts and messages from friends in the country all the time talking about how desperate the situation is right now. Yeah, and I, I want to add to that what Anand was saying um, about. Uh, the concession, you know, demanding concessions from the Taliban, especially around women's rights, before uh, before lifting sanctions. I mean, you know, one, one important factor for a democracy to flourish is that local populations can hold their governments accountable, and it, it's actually remarkable that already we were seeing anti-Taliban protests soon after the Taliban came to power in Kabul. Um, in cities like Jalalabad, forever, uh, for example, but you can't. People can't protest, and women can't go to school, and they can't access healthcare if they are trying to survive. If the if the main issue before them is starvation, um, th- there is no you know th- there is no way to actually hold any government accountable or build a society if you are just trying to survive. And, you know, just to kind of broaden out to really kind of understand how perverted the sanctions regime regime is, um, the U.S. has always had this funny relationship with the Taliban. Uh, The Taliban was on the sanctions list back in 1998-1999. Uh, but it was never put on the foreign terrorist organization list after 2001, like a lot of groups. Um, and this is really remarkable because that that loophole actually gave U.S. government the flexibility to conduct peace talks with the Taliban. And this position of you know freezing Afghan reserves and placing sanctions on the Taliban now it's not really a position that's based on any sort of moral principle that we don't negotiate with terrorists. Um, in fact, I'd say it's quite brutal and uh, we are just perpetuating this really false narrative, um, which, and because of that, I, I really am hoping that if there is enough pressure put on the Biden administration, administration they will lift sanctions, uh, unfortunately, as we probably can all recognize, Afghanistan is already receding from public attention. Can I just add to that real quickly, Rory, that um, sure. I've interviewed some members of the Biden administration, and what's very interesting is uh, there's like a powerful lobby of, uh, I guess, people who, who think that um, the, the Taliban need to be punished because of their stance on women. These are people inside the Democratic Party and kind of adjacent to certain circles of the Democratic Party who are um, who are very wealthy, who are um, very influential, who have been really pushing the line that, you know, we need to punish the Taliban. And that's fine. If you want to just punish Taliban, I, I wouldn't care about it. But then, like I said before, what that means in practice is you're punishing ordinary Afghans and that and I've asked people in interviewing them, like, you know, that the Taliban are going to be fine with this. This is actually you're hurting women. If you care about women's rights, you're actually hurting women. Um, and, you know, a lot of these um, these circles, these uh, elite liberal circles who have been pushing this line don't seem to care about this. And that's why we're seeing this unfolding tragedy. 
Is there any acknowledgement of that in that question? I mean, or do they just ignore it and move on? Well, they say it's up to the Taliban to, you know, to to say that girls should go to school. Now, girls are going to school in, I think, 29 or 30 of the 34 provinces. OK. Um, and as, as I think Rosina said very well, it, the best way that we can force um, the Taliban to make reforms to allow girls to go to school is to support the types of heroic movements that emerged in the last two months, women's movements in Jalalabad and Kabul. But how are you going to do that if people are, can't even are thinking about fleeing the country because they can't have the food on the table? You know, it's really putting a gun to their head, essentially, and everyone's going to leave. And just to, just to add to that, there's actually, you know, when you kind of like put all these pieces together, you realize that there is a particular narrative that is being formed which is that the Taliban is so brutal that we can't negotiate with them or that they have to make concessions. But this is a narrative that one absolves the U.S. of its own brutality, uh, both militarily and through the sanctions regime. And two, it's a narrative that's built through these various structures. Um, you know, earlier Anand was talking about what is considered a refugee and the fact that there is no the UN doesn't recognize and the US doesn't recognize an economic refugee means that in order for Afghans to get um, uh, to get approval for their applications, they have to hype up how terrible the Taliban is to them, ironically enough. And this is a narrative that just continuously perpetuates itself to the point where we're believing in its own fiction. That's a really excellent point. Um... Can we maybe discuss a little bit of the power dynamics in the country? Um, I mentioned the U.S. funded, you know, U.S. backed warlords um, you know, for the last 20 years. Um, Afghanistan never seemed to be, at least in my uh, mind, a country that was capable of being run by one group. Um, who, who, who? I know the Taliban is technically in control of Afghanistan now, according to larger narratives, but who? who can we discuss more of the power dynamics in the country? Yeah, sure. I mean, right now the Taliban's in control. They control like most of the country. Uh, ISIS or ISKP, which is the local franchise of ISIS, controls tiny bits of area and they're waging a pretty brutal insurgency that's killing a lot of civilians. But for the most part, the Taliban is in, is in control. And um, it's interesting to compare like the Taliban's occupation of the country with the American occupation of the country uh, and how they sort of what, what's similar, and what's different. Right. Um, first of all, what's similar uh, when the U.S. invaded in 2001 and the Taliban surrendered and basically gave up their weapons and said, OK, we're, we're licked. We're going to go home. Um, they met with Hamid Karzai, who was the U.S. backed president, and basically said that uh, we will basically surrender any claims to uh, political legitimacy. We will give up our weapons. We will go back home and just let us, you know, live with uh, immunity and we won't, we won't be involved in politics anymore. Um, and everybody from the leadership of the Taliban down to, down to the rank and file did that. The U.S. unfortunately did not allow that surrender to take place. If they had done so in 2001, the, the last 20 years would have been avoided. And, and the tens of thousands of Af Afghans who have been killed would still be alive today if they had done that. But they didn't do that. The reason they didn't do that is because Afghanistan was seen at that point as kind of the opening salvo for a, a broader war on terror that was meant to make remake U.S. Um, imperial interests across the Middle East and South Asia. So first, the U.S. is going to invade Afghanistan, put in a client regime, and and then use the, the war on terror as a as a 
justification to invade Iraq and then from Iraq to Iran. So you had thousands of U.S. troops on the ground with this mandate to say you you are here to fight a war on terror. You need to fight. You need to find terrorists for us, uh, produce terrorists for us so that we can arrest them, send them to Guantanamo or kill them. And so all these Taliban who had surrendered and went home and had quit politics were arrested nonetheless. Their family members were arrested, even people who had nothing to do with them, who happened to be, you know, connected in, in a very tenuous way with them. All of those people were arrested. Many innocent people were sent to Guantanamo or were killed. And as a result, uh, an insurgency uh, was produced. So the remnants of the Taliban reconstituted themselves as an insurgency. Now, today, the Taliban have taken over. The old regime, the old Afghan government, they've all quit. Many of them are just gone back home. And the Taliban are facing the exact same scenario that the U.S. faced in 2001. And they're kind of doing the same thing. They're going and they're rolling up all these people. They're, they're, they were former enemies. They're um, killing people. They're, they're torturing people. And so maybe you will see kind of another insurgency develop as a result uh, of this, right? So that's kind of what's what's um, different between the Taliban and uh, what the what the U.S. did. Now, what's the same? Well, sorry, that's that's one thing that's the same between Taliban and the U.S. did. Now, what's different between the two is that the U.S. in the in uh, persecuting the war on terror, they empowered warlords. So every village would go and find some strong man, give him lots of money, and say, "You go and find us terrorists and bad guys," and they made millionaires and multimillionaires out of this. Right? The Taliban doesn't don't have that kind of money, and they're not creating warlords. They're not paying people to go do their work. They're not outsourcing and privatizing the war, their war, essentially. So that means they're able to hold the, the 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 country. You know, it's not like there's now a hundred different warlords around the country that each have uh, power the way it was in 2001 and 2002. So that means that's what's different. So that's why there's one group that's basically in power, and that I think may stay that way unless there's a severe economic collapse, as we're seeing. Maybe then, who knows what will happen at that point. Yeah, and and I think uh, just the presence of ISIS actually um, offers a potential insurgency. I mean, I think that, you know parts of the Taliban are worried about people uh, of ISIS being able to recruit um, locals, and we might actually see that if the Taliban is unable to deliver services and is unable to uh, care for communities, and also you know as Anand mentioned, they are kind of continuing this is something similar to what the U.S. did. And we're already seeing Taliban just go in and do raids and kill people, um, even if they, if their intelligence is lacking. Um, wow. Um, well, thanks for that, uh, both of you. Um, so we know that the U.S. is regularly engaging in official and unofficial special forces operations, drone strikes uh, and surveillance. Uh, as well as training and you know maintaining uh, proxy forces around the world, we talked about the U. You know the sanctions being its own form of war. But what what is the U.S. military doing in Afghanistan right now, if anything? Well, I mean, right now nothing. They're they're sending their surveillance drones over the country. Um, the Taliban are pretty pissed off about this because they say that, you know, part of the withdrawal deals, you, you can't do that. But they're sending their surveillance drones over the country. There's no military outside of surveillance. There's no kind of kinetic military activity happening inside uh, Afghan borders by the U.S. Uh, or U.S. proxies. A lot of U.S. Uh, um, sort of uh, personnel have sort of 
transferred to Pakistan. There's bases in Pakistan now. Um, but at the moment, there is no U.S. activity inside Afghanistan outside of the surveillance drones. Yeah, I mean, the, the drone the drone program is pretty is pretty important. And, you know, Biden has already said that they're going to use over over the horizon capability. That's what he calls it, um, which is basically drone warfare. And the administration is has been speaking to Pakistan about using its airspace and military facilities to conduct these operations against uh, against ISIS. And um, you know, I, 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 it's it's <laughs> it's kind of remarkable uh, just how far the U.S.'s war on terror regime, uh, the reach of it is. Um, they're not the Biden administration isn't necessarily asking Pakistan. There is a they can leverage um, they can leverage the economic aid it uh, gives to Pakistan in order to make these things happen. And I think it's useful to remember that, you know, anything that the U.S. does in Afghanistan also affects Afghanistan's neighbors. And, um, you know, the, the war on terror does obviously does not look like it did back in 2001, 2002. But it, but the U.S. still has incredible amount of influence on uh, on a lot of these countries, and still determines how these wars are fought. Um, and one of the critical ways that the U.S. has been fighting its war on terror, aside from drone drone and airstrikes, has been through proxies, which really the Obama administration kind of solidified into a major policy. And if if it ever emerges that the U.S. finds likely partners on the ground in Afghanistan, we'll probably see that happening as well. Yeah, and I have now I can share some exclusive news with our viewers, which is that uh, the the U.S. has um, formally asked the Taliban to partner with it in fighting ISKP, the ISIS group inside Afghanistan. The Taliban have said no so far because they're worried about their local legitimacy if they do so. But as the ISKP insurgency ramps up, I would not be surprised if um, they sort of reconsider that offer. And then you do see a very covert alliance between the US and the Taliban against ISIS inside Afghanistan. Now you may ask, okay, well, but ISIS is terrible, so why, you know, what what other option is there since, you know, what are you going to do? But if you take a step back and look at what the policy is now, on the one hand, you have the U.S. starving Afghans. And on the other hand, you have the U.S. allying with the government to kill people. And if you have to look at what are the root causes of a group like ISKP, ISIS in Afghanistan, well, it's bad governance, it's it's um, exploitation, it's it's oppression, it's all these all these things that are tied up in, you know, um, the structure of the country in the last 20, 30 years. And to ignore those root causes and instead to perpetuate them by putting these sanctions on the country and starving Afghans and then, you know, therefore producing indirectly producing uh, people who are so disaffected to join ISIS and then allying with the government to drone them or to send special forces and to kill them is a really perverse policy that doesn't really solve anything, um, but brings a lot of misery to Afghans. Yeah, well, 
um, yeah. Um, can I can I add something to that really quickly? Yeah, please. Um, you know, this this. Uh, <laughs> so during during the U.S.'s counterterrorism regime in Afghanistan, um, it one of the ways it was looking for um, potential terrorists was through these special units, uh, which would conduct raids, which um, ended up either with a lot of civilians, innocent civilians detained or dead. A lot of them were killed. And, you know, when we go back to what early in our, in our conversation is what's happening with Afghan refugees, a lot of these people who were part of the Afghan military, who were part of these special units, have found homes in the U.S. They have found refuge in the U.S. And the people who have been affected by these, by one um the U.S.'s uh, counterterrorism policies to the U.S.'s uh, sanctions regime, three Taliban regime, they are still struggling to survive. And, you know, it really raises the question of who who is this war for? Who is this war for? Who are we helping? And what are our priorities? Yeah, that's a really, really great question. Um, that kind of leads me into my next question. One of the questions I've been thinking about since August Um so, you know, over the last 20 years, and the, the numbers that I'm about to quote are from Rosina's fantastic piece on the American prospect that she wrote a few months ago. Um, that I highly recommend everybody check out. Um, but over the last uh, 20 years, 775,000 U.S. servicemen would be deployed to, you know, Afghanistan and 2,400 would be killed. More than 20,000 would come home injured. A trillion dollars would be spent. spent. Uh, around 66,000 Afghan soldiers would be killed and untold numbers of civilians would lose their lives. Do either of you have thoughts on how we keep Afghanistan in people's minds? And, and kind of more than that, you know, how do we stand in solidarity with ordinary Afghanistan struggling with the effects of the sanctions, the 20-year occupations, 20-year uh, occupation um, because moving on, which is what I think a lot of people in the U.S. would like to do, uh, feels totally wrong, morally, politically, uh, on a number of levels. Yeah, I mean, I actually, I, I I don't think we can move on. And one of the reasons we can't move on is because it's not over yet. Uh, we are still, the U.S. is still determining the lives of so many Afghans and the entire country, in fact. And, you know, the, the most immediate thing that we can do is to put pressure on the Biden administration to lift the sanctions. I mean, I, I think that is the crisis that we're facing most immediately. Um, and then, you know, beyond that, I think it's really, really worth asking um, what how we can support them. I, I think for so long, you know, for not even just 20 years, but for 40 years, um, we have kind of determined, for example, what Afghan women need or what people on the ground need and determine our priorities that way. But um, we really need to start paying attention to the dynamics on the ground beyond terrorists versus non-terrorists, beyond um you know, the Taliban regime versus the U.S. They're, they're, we actually need to pay attention to how people are living their lives. 
Yeah, I think that's very well put. And I would just add to that, um, in addition to unfreezing the money that that um, should go to Afghanistan, in addition, there are, as Rosina mentioned earlier, there are tens of thousands of people who are still trying to come to our country, Afghans who are trying to get here. Some of them are in Mexico, still been waiting to get here. Others are in Qatar and other country, you know, refugees who are stranded in various places trying to get here. And first of all, morally, we owe it to uh, uh, to Afghans to to fight to help them uh, come here because every single Afghan refugee, and it doesn't even matter if they're somebody who is supporting the Afghan government or opposed to the Afghan government, all of them are refugees ultimately because of the American occupation and the way the United States ruined that country. And so we owe it to them to to open our doors and bring and, and bring them here. Um, I think there's a. a a deeper way in which that was a, that's a moral argument. There's also a political connection between the sort of uh, conditions in which ordinary Americans are facing here in the United States and what has happened in Afghanistan. And that's maybe surprising just because, you know, Afghanistan is one of the poorest countries in the world. We're one of the richest countries in the world. But there are, I think, important connections that need to be drawn out. I'll give one example of that. I mentioned earlier that the U.S., when they invaded in 2001, one of the things they did is they had they allied with a lot of warlords to, to, to fight, quote unquote, bad guys. Right. So why did they ally with warlords? You know, uh, there were in many of these cases, these were warlords that they brought from outside the country. You know, it's not like Afghanistan when they came there were just warlords walking around that they can talk to. I mean, these are people that they brought from outside the country, Afghans, they brought from outside the country and uh, gave them extraordinary sums of money, armed them to the teeth and empowered them to be horrible actors. So why did they do that? And the reason is because if you go back to 2001, 2002 and look at the U.S.'s uh, strategy in Afghanistan, the idea was that they wanted to have a light military footprint on the ground, so mostly special forces and mostly reliant on air power, and to outsource most of the actual war fighting to locals, uh, to proxy forces. And the reason they wanted to do that, this is something called the Rumsfeld Doctrine, related to the to former Secretary of Defense, which is that uh, for most, for 20, 30 years in the 70s and 80s and 90s, most of American society, um, government uh, services were slashed, government was made smaller, most activities were outsourced to the private sector. And the, kind of the last part of American society where that, uh, that uh, ideology hadn't been touched was the military. So what was happening with the Rumsfeld Doctrine was to, to extend what we call neoliberalism uh, to the military, to, to make the military smaller, quote unquote, more efficient, um, to outsource a lot of the activities to private actors. So a lot of uh, activities in Afghanistan that were done by warlords or by private security contractors in the past had been done by U.S. military soldiers. So everything from logistics to, you know, cooking to all sorts of things, all of that was outsourced. Right. And so what the U.S. created in Afghanistan was really this perverse libertarian neoliberal society in which there was hardly any government. There was no social services because there was no tax collection. There was a bunch of uh, independent warlords and, and power brokers and private security contractors running around. You know, it was like this Mad Max vision uh, that really is like the logical culmination of libertarianism and logical culmination of neoliberalism. 
That was what was imposed on Afghanistan. And really, to some extent, that's what's been imposed on our country, too. With If you look at the ways in which social services have been completely gutted over the last 20, 30 years, look at the kind of um, poverty that's uh, that's resulted from that. And so in this weird kind of way, we, we are both victims of the same ideology and in different ways, but we're both kind of facing the same thing. And so it's in our interest here in the United States to try to fight that ideology. And part of that means fighting the manifest stations of the ideology in other countries like Afghanistan. And so that's why it's still relevant for us here, what's happening there and what continues to happen there. The, part, the economic collapse there is a direct result of the neoliberal regime that the United States had put in place in the previous 20 years. So those are, I think, the moral and political reasons why we, I think we should keep Afghanistan front and center in our attentions. Yeah, you can't have peace building without politics. Yeah, those are some fantastic points, um, which kind of leads me into maybe a little bit, it's kind of a harder question. I think, um, you know, it's been endlessly frustrating how little attention Afghanistan has gotten over the last 20 years, you know, with the official withdrawal um, in August, um, you know, at the topic of Afghanistan has fallen off the map even more than it already was. Um, what does pressure on the Biden administration look like? Um, with so few people talking about Afghanistan right now um, to lift the sanction. Rosie? Um, well, I, I would say like, we need to be actually part of, part of the work is like building, um, building a movement that, that really centers this, you know, that really, that really centers this message. It's really fallen off the, uh, fallen off the public narrative and the public imagination, and we need to keep talking about it as, as the left, as activists, as uh, journalists. Um, and I, I think that uh, you know one thing that we can also do is remind ourselves of how this is. You know, kind of like what Anand was talking about. How is this connected to the rest of our politics? Um, for example, we just approved a, you know, a spending bill for the Pentagon that is a much higher than what the Biden administration asked for. Congress just approved it. And B, it's much higher than they asked for in a year when we are no longer in Afghanistan. And we should be asking and demanding from our senators and our Congress people why did you approve this uh, this funding? What is this going for? What is this going towards? Why are we still prioritizing uh, war and this you know th this empire rather than actually meeting the humanitarian needs of the people that whose lives we have destroyed over the past twenty years and continue to do so? Yeah, I think um, if, that's a great point, because if, if you look at these Pentagon budgets, it's essentially a form of social wealth transfer, right? Because this is these are tax dollars that are being taken from working class people and essentially being given to defense contractors. They're the ones who are uh, really benefiting from these. And it's at the same time as the president could say, the, the 
era of forever wars is over and then also have an unprecedented Pentagon budget um, indicates that somebody's benefiting, uh, you know, somebody's benefiting from these things. And so it's it's pretty horrific. And also just to say, Rory, to, to your question of um, what what does this what does this look like in addition to the sorts of social movements and pressures on, on uh, people in government, et cetera, uh, I think it's also important for us um, who are thinking about these things to draw connections between issues that might seem disparate, right? Uh, for example, there was this really horrific um, shooting in this school in, in Michigan, right, um, the other day. And the the shooter, was a 15, I think 15-year-old, was charged with terrorism. And I mean, it's one thing to charge the person because you committed this horrific crime, but it's another thing to charge them with terrorism. And that's just an example of the way in which the war on terror and what was really kind of perfected. Afghanistan was a laboratory for the war on terror. Everything about the war on terror, from drone warfare to proxy warfare to the neoliberalization of war, all of that was perfected in Afghanistan and then brought to the rest of the world and brought here, right? Actually, sorry to interrupt, but in some ways the drone warfare also started at the borders here and then was taken abroad. Fair enough. But then perfected over there, you'd agree. Yes. Um, And, and, you know, and so now we have this like uh, this um, legal regime of of terrorism where you can, um, you know, uh, you can charge people with uh, material support for terrorism. This is stuff that Rosina has written about. I'll actually love to hear from you a little bit about that because you know better than me. But this is uh, terrifying to see the ways in which democracy is being eroded because of the war on terror. Yeah, and that's exactly right. And it's really interesting that you bring up this case of the shooter because what what um, charging him with terrorism does is mean mean that he would have enhanced um, enhanced sentencing if that ever happened. It would be a much harsher punishment. Um, but you know, for a lot of people, it just seems it, it seems obvious that he should be charged with terrorism and. That's because we have grown up for the past 20 years, we have been living under this kind of um, landscape where we think that where war has been normalized. And it's really useful to remember that it's not just generations in Afghanistan who have grown up only in just warfare. So have we as Americans. And we might not see, you know, bombs and drones here inside our borders, but we have become accustomed to and we normalize harsher sentencing, harsher punishments, um, more money towards, for example, law and, law and order rather than meeting the basic needs of community. Oh, that's a really, really good point. Um, so this feels like a stupid question, but I'll ask it anyways, just because I think it's important to frame the last 20 years in this, in this way. Um, you know, the, the trillion dollars spent in Afghanistan could have you know, put us well on our way toward building a sustainable green infrastructure in the U.S. A uh, trillion dollars could have provided a home to every homeless person. A trillion dollars not spent on war could have saved hundreds of thousands of lives over the last 20 years. Do you think anyone will be held accountable for this epic crime? Um, and if not, why? No. <laughs> Um, I, I really think this is, I mean, you know, I'm maybe on and disagrees, but I really think that this is an era that has been a part, in addition to other things, has really been defined by the lack of accountability when it comes anything from 
torture to uh, killing of civilians to botched airstrikes to uh, to something like spending a trillion dollars um, and not getting anything out of it. Um, I, I, I really, I, it, there will be no accountability because ha- unfortunately there has been no, among the elite, there has been no need for it. Um, and I think we already heard that in the, when Obama was president and he had said that they would not hold the Bush administration accountable. And I think that really set the stage for what was going to happen the rest of, and, until today. Yeah, I, and I think that kind of gets to the heart of why there isn't these movements against the war, because there hasn't been accountability. Um, you know, there's never really been accountability for the war makers in this country. But I feel like this this belief that there is no accountability and there never will be kind of creates a, a listlessness, I guess, in the general population. <laughs> They're like, oh, the, the ruling class is going to do what the ruling class is going to do. I might as well just tune it out type thing. And and that kind of thing scares me because, you know, if everybody tunes something out, then, you know, where do we go? Um, it's just, just us having these really important, great discussions, uh, you know, on the internet. Um, but, you know, I, I'm interested in how, how we how we deal with that general lack of accountability. Um, and maybe that's too big of a question <laughs> for for this for this conversation. But I just wanted to throw it out there. Um, no, I mean, I, I think that's a good question. And I, and I think I, I don't mean to seem so pessimistic. I think there are, you know, there, there are movements. Um, there There are changes that I think we should acknowledge and recognize um, they, the fact that Biden did pull out of Afghanistan, I think is a very good thing. Uh, the fact that that um, ending drone warfare is part of mainstream conversation is a very good thing. Um, I think we can continue to hold our government accountable by, at least when it comes to, you know, U.S. imperialism is constantly question the Pentagon spending budget. We should constantly be questioning why we are sending weapons uh, to Saudi Arabia, even if it's for quote unquote defense. Um, we, you know, I, I, I do think like, unfortunately that anti-war uh, movement was devastated um, in the U S not just because nothing came of it, but because there were active, there were um, actual attempts to arrest and uh, surveil protesters and activists. I mean, this was a movement that was heavily surveilled. Uh, a lot there were mass arrests during these protests, and I, I, I think we're actually kind of in this really interesting moment right now because more and more people are recognizing that it's not a political party that can save us, but it's us. And I, I think that's it's really, really um, important for us to just keep that in mind that the next 20 years don't have to look like the last 20 years. Yeah, that's 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 really good. And, and maybe I'll just follow that up with a question from the comment section. Um, can can the speakers talk about why they think the Biden administration pulled out of Afghanistan um, and how does that withdrawal fit into the broader aims of the American empire and the war on terror more generally? 
dummy? Or... Uh, that's a really good question. I think uh, what the first of all, we should understand the U.S. was not losing the war. And um, in the one level, if you if you just if you define winning the war as setting up a, a stable client state without insurgency, they lost the war back in 2005. Right? At that point, the Taliban was rooted in parts of the countryside, and no matter of hundreds, 200,000 troops, none of that was really going to change that dynamic. And that's what we've seen. So basically, from 2005, if at any point since 2005 until this summer, had the U.S. withdrawn, you would have seen the exact same result, which is the Taliban immediately taking over the country. Um, so it, it, it was... But on the other hand, the Taliban were not strong enough to just go into the Kabul and expel the U.S.-backed forces, right? Um, and so you essentially had this war of attrition where the U.S. was supporting its proxies in major population centers. The Taliban were rooted in the countryside. Afghans were caught in between. And they were the ones who were suffering. And the U.S. could have continued that really in perpetuity. They could have continued that for 10, 20, 30 years. As you said, there was no anti-war movement here. They could have just done that, right? But I think what happened is, on the one hand, uh, there was there's a growing, at least cynicism among most Americans about American uh, military adventures abroad. I think as a result of the defeat in Iraq, first and foremost, and then sort of the fact that Afghanistan hasn't been really going in any direction for a long time. And I think the Trump election and Trump's sort of signaling to that um, produced some fissures within the American ruling class on how to manage American empire. And there were those who felt that the, the U.S. should not try to waste its time on places like Afghanistan, where, frankly, it's not the same geostrategic uh, motivations that existed in 2001 don't exist anymore. Right. At the time, as I said, it was Afghanistan to Iraq to Iran. Now, after the U.S. defeat in Iraq and um, everything that's happened, uh, negotiations with Iran, it's not realistic to think that the U.S. is going to go from Iraq to Afghanistan, Iraq to Iraq. Right. And so there's a movement, there's a tendency within some elements of the American elite to say we need to stop wasting our time in a place that we're not really getting anything out of, where there's a deep cynicism, where our political opponents can use it against us by saying that we are not America first and pivot towards China, pivot towards Asia and um, reorient American imperial interests towards places that are, frankly, more uh, important strategic threats for the U.S. elite. But I think that it was it was those factors that came together uh, at, at once. And so that's why the U.S. decided to withdraw from Afghanistan. Yeah. And, and that said, I think, uh, you know, I, I agree with that. Um, it, it, but if uh, another ISIS arises, for example, in the Middle East, I think the U.S. would once again uh, be very active and intervene. I think that kind of segues well into this other, I think, really important question from the comment section. Both of the speakers mentioned how Afghanistan was a key part of the war on terror. Uh, as U.S. troops leave the country, what is left of the war on terror and how important is it as a framework for the U.S. military strategy today? Well, I'll say what is left of the war on terror 
leaving aside the military strategy, first and foremost is, as I mentioned before, the way it's changed our own laws here. I mean, just the fact that this shooter was uh, charged with terrorism, that is a direct consequence of the war on terror. There's also the case, maybe Rosina, you can talk about it, of those of lawyers uh, in the Black Lives Matter protests who were charged, right, with, with if you want to discuss that case. That's a chilling example of the ways in which the war on terror continues in perhaps a different form, but with the same premises. Now, on the military side, um, the U.S. is still continuing the war on terror, um, you know, in parts of Africa, uh, East Africa and North Africa, you have U.S. special forces who are intervening in, in countries on the on the idea of the war on terror. In Syria, there are U.S. troops on the ground in Syria right now, allied with the um, with the YPG, YPJ. Um, and their mission, as they understand it, is a counterterrorism mission, is to fight ISIS. There are U.S. troops still in Iraq. Again, their, their understanding of their mission is a counterterrorism mission. So counterterrorism is still the dominant paradigm in which um, people, uh, in which the U.S. military sees its actual kinetic activity right now. But at the same time, as I said earlier, there's a broader strategic shift, I think, away from this idea of the war on terror as the main activity of the U.S. towards trying to confront what the U.S. elite sees as its bigger threats, which is China and uh, Russia. Yeah, and and because because the U.S. is pivoting away from um, you know the Middle East to China and Russia, it's it's important not to lose sight of the fact that even though we have ended our war in Afghanistan to some to uh, to an extent, we have not ended the war on terror, and that means that we still have both the capability and the option of. Um, invading countries if we want to, of using drone strikes, which we continue to do so in countries, even if we have not declared war on them. And, uh, you know, Guantanamo is still open. That's a remnant of the war on terror. Um, it is, the Biden administration has actually given no plan on how to close Guantanamo. Um, there is you know, as Anna mentioned, there is a legal regime here that has been created because of the war on terror, which is now being used to target protesters like Black Lives Matter protesters and put them and, and threaten them with decades of uh, prison time. And I, you know, I, I would love for our conversations when we talk about war and empire in the mainstream to question and challenge a president um, and, and the government, when are we going to end this war on terror? What does success in this war on terror look like? Because that was never, a, there was never a measurable success. And that is why we have always both, depending on how you look at it, we've either always failed or we've either always succeeded. And there's, oh, you know, and, and either way you can justify continuing in perpetuity. Yeah, I want to take this opportunity to plug Rosina's really important article called Lawful Carnage um, that was published in the American Prospect on August 10th, where she takes up a lot of these issues and goes into explores them deeper. Um, everybody should read it. And if uh, we could post that article in the comment section, that would be awesome. Um, we have one more question from the, a couple more. Let me just pull this up here. Um, so... Where is it? A lot of windows open here. Um, Marge, let's see. 
it up here. Okay. Amarj says, what do you think about the recent skirmishes between the Taliban and Tehran uh, on the Iranian border? What is the story behind that? So the um, Taliban and Iran have a very complicated relationship because Iran has supported some elements of the Taliban in Western Afghanistan, especially in Helmand province. Uh, at the same time, um, Iran is um, essentially opposed to the Taliban, both because of their history, because of uh, identity issues and others. And so it's a bit of a complicated issue. I mean, the Taliban have also skirmished with Pakistani soldiers on the southern and eastern borders as well. So I think this is just a case, honestly, of um, this group that's really not fit to run a government because they've been mostly a militia or an insurgency for 20 years, all of a sudden doing that and not understanding the rules of statecraft, basically. Uh, I don't think it's anything broader than that. Um, Iran is playing a double game inside Afghanistan, kind of supporting some elements and opposing others uh, publicly. As is Pakistan, by the way, playing a long time, playing a double game. Okay, um, thank you. Um, so Joanna uh, Vendetta uh, essentially asks, are there any universities or foundations who are working to help prom- help people in the U.S. understand the impacts of American cultural imperialism? Uh, Maybe organizations, groups. Uh, None come to mind to me. <laughs> of American what? Cultural imperialism. Cultural imperialism. Yes. I, I, I would say read Haymarket books. <laughs> yes. She called Haymarket books, which uh, does a good job of that. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. Um, how about this one? Um, so U.S. warmakers saw 9-11 as a huge opportunity and they seized it. Um, people around the world suffered enormous pain and loss at the hands of the U.S. empire for the next 20 years. Do you have thoughts on how we prevent, you know, another generation of 18 to 21 year olds, um, you know, from signing up to fight on behalf of America's ruling class again? Yeah, I mean... <laughs> You know, I, I really think, one, we do need to build an anti-war movement. Um, and, you know, it, it's understandable that it is being why there isn't one. Um, we are we live in a neoliberal society. We're a factor community. And also the government has consistently um, targeted uh, anti-war movements and also whistleblowers or, you know, people who could potentially fight for peace. Um, but but that doesn't mean we shouldn't build one. We should work on it. Um, but the other, other aspect is, which sometimes kind of gets lost, is just how critical the role of the media was in, um, in selling this war and justifying this war. And, you know, I, I love how Anand frames this. I mean, he constantly reminds us that, like, the U.S. had won the war in Afghanistan by December 2001. And then the U.S. lost the war by 2005. And everything after was just, you know, us just wasting money. Um, we, we need a media that is actually holding power to account, um, is not just it's not just accepting the US's the US government's narrative 
especially when it comes to terrorism. And it's not, and this doesn't, hasn't just happened in the context of Afghanistan or Iraq. It also happens in the context of how we talk about, for example, terrorism cases at home. And the way that journalists have covered these issues has been to really just accept the U.S.'s framing. And we we need to be able to um, hold our governments accountable. Uh, you know, we, we can't keep relying on this, this basically excuse that everything has to be kept private, that intelligence and classified information has to be kept private because of national security. We have seen consistently that it, intelligence has been faulty and it has led to people either going to prison for decades or in a lot of cases being killed and also entire countries being devastated. And I, I do think that um, we need, we need as, you know, as an American community, we start, we need to start um, really demanding more of our governments. It was, I would just add, sorry, Rory. Oh, I was just going to say that was one of Chelsea Manning's great revelations. I think there was like seven embedded reporters in Iraq at the height of the Iraq war, uh, whatever. And those were highly vetted reporters. You know, the U.S. obviously has learned a lot since Vietnam, where the Vietnam War was in everyone's living room every single night. And you could you had to look really hard to find any coverage of Afghanistan or Iraq over the last 20 years. So, I mean, point very well taken on that. Go ahead, Anand. Yeah, just on that point, actually, is um, I think it's important important also to be honest and look at some of the other ways in which the U.S. has kind of engineered war fighting and war making to to make it easier for them to be able to have these forever wars, right? I mean, you mentioned Vietnam. Um, the draft is a major, major uh, factor that in the in the Vietnam War. I mean, if you go out at any point in the last 20 years and ask any ordinary person on the street, how does the war in Afghanistan affect you? Most of them probably wouldn't know, right? Because it doesn't immediately, I mean, it does affect them, but the ways in which it affects them is not obvious to them um, because they're not going to be called up to go and fight. Whereas that wasn't the case in the 1960s. And the war planners and war makers understood that. That's one of the reasons why I mentioned earlier the kind of neoliberalization of, of war, the Rumsfeld Doctrine, and other really important aspect of the Rumsfeld Doctrine was to say that we want to have wars that are um, sort of don't affect ordinary, that most Americans feel inured from, right? That they, that they don't see the consequences of these wars. So it's, a, it's all volunteer army. Um, it's a smaller army than our smaller military than it was in, in, in previous ways. Most of the killing is, is um, you know, put onto airplanes and to, to foreigners, to other people, not to Americans. And so therefore, you, that's how the U.S. is able to maintain uh, its military force without having to rely on a draft. But that uh, what that means is that um, for a lot of people, these wars tend to feel abstract. They tend to feel like they're not connected to their everyday lives. And that, again, I think links back to the importance of media and importance of, um, you know, organizations like Haymarket and others to be able to, to relay what's actually happening on the ground and to try to draw the connections to say, well, look, you know, you're um, you're feeling like you don't have uh, adequate access to health care or uh, education. And at the same time, we're spending billions of dollars on the Pentagon budget or trillions of dollars. And so um, that's money that could be better used for human need and not for um, these wars that have uh, no benefit to you. 
Yeah, that's a really good point. And it, it also kind of depends on what demographic uh, you're looking at, because, you know, here in Chicago, on the south and west sides of Chicago, where you have more kids being recruited into the JROTC program than any school district in the country, more, you know, 50 percent are, are, are black, the 45 percent are Latinx. Um, and so these kids when you talk to them, they can tell you very little about the last 20 years, but they are being recruited by, you know, the thousands of military recruiters that are stalking the hallways. And they're, and they're targeting kids with the least amount of options after graduation. And this, you know, for a lot of kids, that feels like the only way out of poverty. And, and so I do think, you know, making connections, you know, between free education, you know, there's a lot less incentive to go to the military if there's universal free education. That's a huge blow to U.S. imperialism if if everybody's guaranteed a college education after they graduate high school, uh, healthcare, you know, the, the same way people, people need a job that is going to give them benefits of, of, of healthcare. And so I think making, making those connections is really important. And, and that's to say nothing of, you know, the trickle down effects of the surveillance system. And the, there's a camera on every corner in Chicago and half the police officers are ex military. Um, so yeah, uh, just, yeah, I guess that was follow up. Um, there's another question here. Uh, the speakers referenced the pivot to China as a as a strategic threat, but what does that pivot look like? Are we likely to see more proxy wars, direct confrontations, drones, sanctions, etc.? Yeah, it's hard to say. I I think definitely we'll see a lot more saber rattling. Um, beyond that, I don't know. I I'm of the opinion that um, that the U.S. Um, class and um, is kind of in a period of discord and confusion and is not in a place where it's um, going to be able to confront China militarily directly or probably even in terms of uh, proxies because the problem here is that this can very quickly escalate. So right now there's a lot of saber rattling around Taiwan, for instance, um, and you may see, I expect in, in coming years, you may see more discussion around parts of sub-Saharan Africa where China ha China is um, extending its reach economically in a pretty um, rapid way. Um, but whether the U.S. is in a position or, an, or has an ability to try to, to, to react to that, I'm not sure. I mean, let's be honest. I mean, spent 20 years fighting people in sandals, essentially, you know, um, in the poorest country on earth with people like the Taliban and the other insurgents really have nothing uh, against their raid against people with the fanciest and most expensive military equipment in history. I mean, this is in some ways the most technologically advanced warfighting force that humanity has ever seen. And they're struggling against people in sandals with Kalashnikovs and RPGs, right? What are they going to do against China or against China-backed forces? It's hard for me to imagine. This is really, I think, a symptom, in my view, of this slow, very slow, but steady decline of U.S. imperialism and the U.S. as a world power. I don't know if you guys disagree. I know this is a divisive topic. What do you guys think? No, I mean, I, I think you're right. Like, it's hard to imagine a direct confrontation with China. But I think where the U.S. will flex its muscles is in countries where uh, both China and the U.S. have some presence or the U.S. wants more leverage over. So, you know, if we take, for example, Pakistan, um, the U.S. has a lot of leverage over Pakistan right now with economic aid it provides in return for counterterrorism services. On the other hand, China and Pakistan have a very close economic relationship now. 
especially over uh, resources like water. And so I think this is where you're going to see a lot of these tensions between uh, China and the U.S. playing out is in third countries. Um, but you, the other part of kind of, I'm going to say war making is the is a war industry that 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 kind of arises every time we decide that there is a threat. So the last 20 years, we have built a huge, you know, like counterterrorism cottage industry. And, and I can see that happening again in the context of China, for example, more experts, more think tanks, um, you know, more centers that focus on this and kind of parrot that line of how China is the biggest national security threat to the U.S. Um, and this is it, some war is profitable for a lot of people and it's going to continue to be. Yeah, the, the question about the decline of the U.S. empire is, is is a tough one. I mean, I think a lot of people were saying the same thing after Vietnam. Um, and I think the U.S. was dealing with a similar enemy to who, who they were dealing with in, in Afghanistan, an enemy that refused to give up, um, a much poorer enemy, but uh, uh, an enemy with a will and, and determination uh, to keep fighting. Um, but the U.S. bounced back, you know, every there. Gulf War, you know, the first Gulf War, everybody's all the U.S. is back. We, we have nothing to worry about anymore. Um, but now we're still having we're having that discussion again. Um, um, but, I, it, you know, it's also important to say that the U.S. still has, you know, thousands of more nuclear weapons than China. You know, I think the U.S. has like 11 aircraft carriers where China may have one or two. Um, the U.S. still is an imposing force. And it's 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 hard to say if it's if it's in decline. Um, it's a complicated question, and I, I, one that I don't have an answer to. But um. I know, I, I, you know, I, I know we keep coming back to this, but I do want to just repeat that one of the big ways that the U.S. flexes its imperial reach is through money and you know through sanctions or through using economic aid as a leverage, and that even if we're not sending weapons or using weapons against a country doesn't mean that we're not um, affecting the fate of that country. 100%. So the Pittsburgh dude, 87, um, has a question. Uh, There's a growing sense that secret bodies like the CIA and FBI actively dismantle and oppose uh, any attempt to change the status quo. How do we build... uh, how do we build options to covert action, things like that? Um, how do we how do we build opposition to covert actions and things like that? Do you mean uh, covert action domestically or? Uh, Pittsburgh or something. Could eighty seven um, might be able to follow up that question? Um, but yeah. yeah um, Well, Rosie wrote an amazing article about, I mean, enraging an amazing article about um, the FBI's use of entrapment. Maybe you want to talk about that and some of the lessons from that. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that really crystallized, that has been crystallized over the past 20 years is that um, agencies like the FBI and the CIA and police departments here have grossly abused their powers. Um, but 
you know, f- for example, we know that the FBI surveilled communities, a lot of not just Muslim communities, but other minorities. And that led to the arrests of thousands of people. And um, and some of these people, hundreds of these people are in jail, even though they had committed no violent crime. There have been challenges to this abuse of power over and over and over again. But what we had seen is a lack of political um, drive to actually hold these agencies accountable. So, the, you know, these um, these efforts kind of come in the form of lawsuits and, and the courts consistently strike them down, saying that the U.S. government has uh, enjoys national security privilege but this is this is a fight that is a political fight and it really goes into something we were talking about earlier is how to end a war on terror that consistently justifies this gross misuse of power Um, and i think that's what we kind of need to set our sights upon and really focus on and hold our politicians to power we have not I think this was the only year for the first time in 20 years where Congress people, and I think it was Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar and perhaps someone else, that they asked for um, uh, some accountability of, of the FBI surveillance programs and, and what happened after 9-11. But for the most part, this is not something that politicians touch. And this is just something that needs to become a political conversation rather than just be confined to the courts. And just to add on to that as well, I mean, when the January 6th uh, events happened, for example, there was a lot of calls, I think, from some leftists and definitely lots of liberals uh, to uh, apply the laws of of counterterrorism. On on these on the people who did that and call them terrorists, etc. And it's fine, you know. Obviously, I think those people are terrible too. But to to just um, do that without thinking about the ramifications and how this will affect everybody. Sorry, um, how this will affect everybody uh, is really dangerous. And we need to look at the ways in which this, like what what Rosie described uh, in her article, and this whole app. It's it's an entire apparatus that is basically working to erode democracy for everybody. And maybe if you want to just mention the the case with the the, the lawyers in the Black Lives Matter. Oh yeah, yeah. So the, there were two lawyers last year um, in in Brooklyn who in the height of the Black, Black Lives Matter um, protests, they threw a Molotov cocktail into an already burnt NYPD car. And these are these two lawyers are both they're you know uh, they're for minority communities and immediately after their arrest prosecutors charged them with terrorism and they did so in a really funny and circuitous way um, but essentially what that meant was because they were charged with terrorism they were held in solitary confinement during pretrial. And because of this harsh sentencing, they were facing, uh, sorry, uh, harsh charges. They were facing life in prison if convicted. Unfortunately, and, and re- remind you, this is because they threw a Molotov cocktail in an already burnt NYPD vehicle. No one was hurt. No one was around. No, um, 
right? There was no, no one even there. No one was there. Yeah. It was it was just empty. And they were facing life in prison for this. Um, and understandably, because of this severe sentencing, they both ended up pleading guilty. Uh, and this is a tactic that prosecutors have been using increasingly after 9-11, which is why so many people have pled guilty after they've been charged with terrorism because they know that a, a conviction after trial would land them in uh, in prison for decades, if not for life. If they plead guilty, they can negotiate with prosecutors for a lighter sentence. And that just perpetuates this narrative that the government has used saying, look, we've convicted so many terrorists. There are so many terrorists in this country. And um, this is what they were doing last year, too, when these two these two lawyers and protesters were arrested. Yeah, that is enraging. And I mean, the casual use of the word terrorism has been a tool of dictatorships you know, throughout history. Um, um, yeah, wow. Well, thanks for that report. Can Where was that uh, published, uh, Rosina? Um, so this uh, this story of the two of the two lawyers has been published in many places. Um, their names are Arut Rahman and, and Colin Mattis. Um, and then I separately wrote a piece about these terrorism convictions uh, for the New York Times Magazine in April. Oh wow! Okay, maybe we can post that in the chat. Well, this has been a fantastic discussion. Thank you so much for both of you, uh, to both of you for. Um, contributing tonight. Uh, is there anything you'd want to say to wrap up or um, kind of some closing thoughts? Uh, yeah, I, I guess I would just like to reiterate that, um, you know, after 20 years of war uh, that has really uh, helped fill the pockets of corrupt politicians and uh, and you know, U.S. military contractors and NGOs, we we really need to think about what we owe Afghans and we really need to pressure the Biden administration to lift sanctions. Yeah, and I'll just, I guess I'll end by saying if there's two takeaways from today that I would try to impress upon people. One is that the war in Afghanistan is not over. It's being fought by other means, economic means currently right now. And two, the war on terror is not over. It is still shaping our institutions and eroding our democracy at home. Well, thank you very much. This was fantastic and it's an incredibly important discussion. Hopefully it, it gets some some legs online and a lot of people have a chance to see it. But uh, thanks again and hopefully we can do a, a similar discussion in the future. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.